So there's a great episode of This American Life uh, podcast, an episode called My Way. Well, a, an episode about regrets. And uh, Ira Glass plays a little clip from uh, a Frank Sinatra song, Frankie, singing about uh, My Way. And the words in the song are, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. And Ira Glass says, it's great line, he says, too few to mention? Oh, oh, really? Not me, buddy. Not most people. If you don't have regrets, it means you haven't screwed up. It means you haven't had your heart broken. It means you haven't been bloodied. It means you haven't failed. Like, why even live? And then Ira Glass goes on to say, some regrets just never go away. People tell us that they forgive us. We try to forgive ourselves, and still we know we did wrong. We hurt somebody. It was real. And that feeling, it can immobilize you. It's just like this pebble in your shoe, he says, that teaches you nothing. It doesn't slow you down, really. It just hurts. It just hurts in this way that does not stop hurting. That is just so wise and profound. You know, it wasn't supposed to be this way. We weren't supposed to live in a world where people like carried pebbles around in their shoes all the time and it just kept hurting. About 130 years ago, there was a German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who, who said that God and guilt, or what he called the sense of indebtedness to God, were in, inextricably linked together. And once we would experience and just embrace the reality of the death of God, then there, he, would see, he predicted there would just be this dramatic decline in guilt, and we would actually enter into a, a, a second innocence, he said, like a new Eden. No God, no guilt. It hasn't worked that way. We don't live in a world. Ira Glass is right, and I think everybody knows this and feels this on one level, unless you're a sociopath, you know? And I don't know many of you, I don't know any of you here, let me just say that, that are sociopaths. Be careful with that. Any, not many. We all have pebbles. We got rocks. We got boulders on our shoulders. I'm going to turn 60 in June. I think of the things I've said and thought and done and left undone, if I start adding those little pebbles up, and it's not just religious stuff, and it's not just religious people. We live in a very moralistic age, a condemning age, a ruthlessly condemning age, with social media and the apps on our phones you know, I discovered this thing like three months ago. I didn't know this. Like, my phone keeps track of the number of steps I take every day. <laughs> At first, I thought this was really wonderful. Wow, I had 7,000 steps. Now I got friends that say, oh, I take 15,000 steps every day. And now I'm like always behind every single day. I'm behind. Everything, I have another way, this whole new way to condemn myself. The good news is that God has provided a way for the human race, and not just the human race in abstraction, but me 
and you to be forgiven once and for all through Jesus Christ. That is what the Hebrews passage is all about and what the book of Hebrews is all about. And if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, it's a hard book. It's a very intellectual book. It was written by someone who was a master of Greek prose and the Greek language, a brilliant thinker. We don't even know who it is, which is so cool that there's this brilliant person walking around in the early church, brilliant, and a prose stylist. And nobody knows who it is. That's so cool. But it's all about, there's a lot of stuff about blood and sacrifices and bulls and goats and offerings. And you think, this is just so foreign. What does this have to say to our lives today? Well, I think we're going to see that the spirit of the living God who spoke these words 2,000 years ago is still speaking these words into human hearts, and there is still freedom through these words. Now, your bulletin, you know, as if we didn't have enough scripture readings, your bulletin actually has just part of what I'm going to preach on. So what I want to do is I want to, so if you turn to page 9, we have, I'm actually start with verse 1 of chapter 10, and it's a long, complex thought that he has. But it's, and I tell you about the first 40 times I read it as a Christian, I didn't understand it or get anything out of it. But if you slow down and just think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense. So what I want to do is I want to walk through most of the chapter of Hebrews chapter 10, and I want to look at three things, and they, they kind of logically flow together. The first is the need for forgiveness, which is sort of all the background to this passage, and then there's the offer of forgiveness, what God offers to us and how he offers to us. And then it's the experience of forgiveness. So the need for forgiveness, the offer of forgiveness, and then the experience of forgiveness. Because God wants us to experience his forgiveness. In the deepest places, what Ira Glass was talking about, God wants that hurt to go away. God really wants to heal that hurt of those things that we carry. So the need for forgiveness. You know, there was this thing, uh, I don't know, five, ten years ago, it didn't seem to last very long, with professional athletes, where, I I don't know, maybe musicians did this, maybe dancers did this, I don't know, but I I saw professional athletes do this a lot. They'd make a really stupid play. Like, a guy would go up to dunk it, and he would hit the rim, and it would bounce off the rim, or a, a center fielder would be sitting for a fly ball, and boop, he'd drop it. Or a guy would make a pass to a basketball player and go right to his hands. And then you'd see this. They'd mouth the words, my bad, my bad. Kind of like, oops, all you got to do is say, my bad, and it's all good. You know, when it comes to God, sometimes it would be nice to think that all we'd have to do is go, oh, my bad, God, sorry, sorry. And so we come to the Bible, and we're, we, we want that. We want that for ourselves because even though we feel this guilt and this shame and this condemnation, we kind of hope that maybe that's the way it works. And we come to the Bible and we're shocked to find out that God actually has strong opposition to human sin, like even calls it wrath in the Bible. 
Now, when you think hear the word wrath, we think of like human emotions, and that's not the way the Bible is describing it. It's more of God's dead set opposition against human sin and evil and brokenness in all its forms. So Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's God's againstness or opposition. Now, if you're like me, sometimes we struggle with this. But you know, and I've traveled around the world, a lot of people in the world don't struggle with this at all. This is just their part of their worldview. They actually are really grateful for this. It's mainly... Not only, but it's mainly, primarily, affluent, Western, privileged people that struggle with the wrathful parts of the Bible. So when Bishop Stewart and I were in Nigeria in 2017, we went around out in the outsides of Jos and we visited five villages which were destroyed. Destroyed, I mean leveled. People murdered, people killed in the 9 a.m. coordinated attacks on these small villages these farmers who were attacked by another group, and we visited these villages. And to see the devastation, it just, my bad was, was not, wouldn't cut it. I have a friend who I was talking to this week. He's an immigrant to this country, came from a war-torn country, came from a horrible, traumatic setting. He invested his life savings in this guy, and this guy has taken his, basically ripped him off and conned him of his life savings. I, I told a friend, I, I saw this guy, I mean, he's walking around Chicago. I can, I can look him up. I can Google him. And so I, told a, I asked a lawyer friend, what can we do about this? And I said, I just, I just want to punch this guy in the face. And he said, well, that would be another problem, especially if you're going to preach on Easter Sunday, so don't do that. I said, I know, but I just, I just feel angry. The uh, Croatian theologian Miroslav Wolf, he said, I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. See, we like to draw lines. We like to say, well, there's good people and there's bad people, and I'm maybe just barely in the good people category, but I'm not in the bad people. I'm not one of those people. You know, those people, whatever, I'm not one of those people. Well, did you hear the gospel story? It was the good people. These were, these were the good people. These were the most religious people. These were the most legal people. These were the most politically organized people. They're the people that crucified Jesus. It's as if to say, if you think you're good, you are capable of this too. We are all capable of this. That's why our reading, that's why we say crucify him, crucify him. Assuming that we probably would have if we were there, caught up in this. No one is righteous. No, not one. There's a Flannery O'Connor story. She's a a 20th century writer from the South. She wrote a story, a number of great short stories, but one of them is The Life You Save May Be Your Own, and there's a character in there named Mr. Shiftlit. And he says at one point, he says, he's really not a very good man, but he thinks he's a good man. He says, I'm a man even if I ain't a whole one. And then Flannery O'Connor says, the narrator says, then he's amazed at his own, astonished and amazed at his own sense of what he calls, I've got a moral imagination. And he does some horrible things throughout the story, and then at the end of the story, he prays, Oh, Lord, break forth 
and wash the slime from this earth. And as you're reading that story, you're, you're, you're thinking, oh yeah, well, what about you, Mr. Shiftlet? What about you? And then as I read the, reread the story a couple weeks ago, I thought, oh yeah, what about me? If the Lord's going to wash the slime off the earth, I mean, I've done some slimy things. I got some slimy attitudes. So the question that Hebrews addresses is how can God judge sin and set things right and still offer forgiveness at the same time? Not only offer forgiveness, but lavish us with grace. And the answer is we're going to need a miracle. We're going to need an intervention. And that's where we get to Hebrews chapter 10 and the offer of forgiveness. So let me just read. It's not in your bulletin, but let me just read a little bit, little chunks at a time, and then, and then just comment on it. So Hebrews chapter 10, the offer of forgiveness. It begins this. So, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So it's talking about the Old Testament law. God's goal is to make perfect us human beings made in his image, to make us whole and clean so that we can draw near into his presence and be bathed in his love and be walking righteously with him and be forgiven and be set free from condemnation and live a whole life and flourish. That is God's goal. But the Old Testament laws were good, but they couldn't do that. They were good in this sense. They were good and because they showed that God wanted to forgive us and they showed that God's forgiveness cost something and that God was going to provide that. But it says that they were but a shadow of the good things to come in Jesus. Literally, they were like a charcoal sketch. You know, so an artist like Rembrandt, before he painted his masterful uh, prodigal son picture in 1668, he made some sketches beforehand in um, 1636 and 1642. I think he made like sketches of the masterpiece painting that he would do. They were really good and they were really helpful, but they weren't the final masterpiece. And so the author of Hebrews is saying here that the Old Testament law and the sacrifices, they were, they were like a charcoal sketch and they taught us important things. They taught us that that God takes sin seriously. They taught us that things are really broken. They taught us that God, you can't just say my bad, that there has to be a cost. And yet, they were a shadow of things to come. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins permanently, to make us perfect. It just won't work. And one of the biggest problems is it was, it was mostly one way. It was mostly, I mean, God provided the way, but it was mostly us offering things to God. Us offering things to God. Verse 5, second chunk. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Then I said, this is Jesus talking still, behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So what's he saying? He's saying that God didn't just give us something to offer him. Jesus came, God in the flesh, to offer himself for us to rectify the problem of sin. God came in bodily form to get personally involved. As we would say, God has skin in the game. So rather than the flow is reversed, it's not just us offering things to God, it's God offering himself bodily to us. Let me put it this way. Let's say there's a building on fire. It's a huge building on fire, huge fire. Chicago Police Department shows up. And this, it just gets out of control. Now the fire chief sends in his men and women and firefighters. He might send in some maps and some fire extinguishers. But if the fire gets really bad and his men and his women are in trouble, at some point, the fire chief has got to go in himself. He's got to get bodily involved. He's got to show up and go in. So I don't know if that happens in fire chief world, but let's assume it does. Jesus is the fire chief. The fire of human sin and our predicament is that bad. We can't fix it. We can't just put a little water on it. God shows up in bodily form in the person of Jesus and goes in with his whole self. Jesus is offering his whole life and his death for us. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus is offering himself to, as Jesus, God the Son, to appease an angry God the Father. That is not, that is a sub-Christian idea. The Father and the Son are offering themselves together as one. The word sacrifice is, that's a little hard for us. The sacrifice sounds negative. It sounds bloody. It sounds just kind of ancient and barbaric. So let me just say a couple things about that. Because again, for many parts of the world, the idea of sacrifice is not, it's not strange. They, st- they live in a worldview where that's allowed. But, but think of sacrifice as, and, and it, the emphasis in Scripture on the blood of Jesus is more, it is, there is physical blood, but it's more of a metaphor for Jesus spilling him, his whole self for us. Not just on his death, but in his life. That's why it says, I've come in a body, I've come to, to live and do your will. My whole life is about sacrificing and offering myself for you. Think of it this way. And this is a quote from the theologian Fleming Rutledge in her book called The Crucifixion. She says, she talks about sacrifice as a life-giving sense, and she says this, of total commitment, the offering of one's entire being. And then she says, imagine this. Imagine a person totally committed to you, totally committed to seeing you flourish, totally committed to fighting for you against all your enemies, 
determined to eliminate everything destructive from your life, attentive to every detail of who you are. Imagine somebody like that. And then imagine they're not doing it out of a sense of neediness. They're not doing it out of a sense of brokenness. They're not doing it to get something in a sort of twisted kind of way. Or they're not doing it out of fear or subservience. You try saying that. Um, They're not doing it out of that, but they're doing it out of freedom. They're doing it out of fullness. They're doing it just because they want to, just because they love you. What human being could do that for you? Even the best marriage doesn't reach that level, not even close to that. But that is Jesus's relation to you when he says here, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and to offer myself for you. And then it says that through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all, that word once for all is a really important word in Hebrews. It's used four times in the book of Hebrews. The literal Greek word is aphapax, which means it's just once for all, one sacrifice for the whole human race, for all your sins, for all time. Boom. It's done. You think of all the sacrifices that people have done throughout history. You think that they were pointing to this great one single sacrifice. Why? Because it's God doing the sacrifice, not us. God is doing it. And so verse 12, it says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What do you do when you come home from work and you've had a hard day? You've come home from school or you come home and then you sit down. Sit down. Why? Because your work is done. You're done. You finished. There's a story. I haven't been able to verify this, but I have, I have it from a credible source that the jazz, jazz saxophonist, Johnny Coltrane, one of the greatest jazz saxophonists of all time, if not the greatest, one night he played this extraordinary rendition of A Love Supreme, a 32-minute outpouring of praise. He stepped off the stage, he put down his sax- saxophone, and people heard him say, Nunc Dimittis. Now, Nunc Dimittis is the Latin word for the prayer of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, which is in our Anglican prayer book, which says, Lord, now you have let your servant depart in peace, for these eyes of mine have seen your salvation. That's what he said. He said, Lord, I can just put this song down in peace. Allegedly, he never played that again for the rest of his life because he had played it perfectly. That's what Jesus is doing in his love supreme, in his life and in his death on the cross. I couldn't have done it any better. Nothing I could have improved upon. And there's nothing you can do to improve upon it either. Verse 14. For by a single offering, one thing, because it's God doing the offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's us. 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So here's the strange thing. Can I go out and live any way I want now? No. Because you're being sanctified. You're not done being made holy. God's not done with you yet. God's still working on you. He's still making you more like Jesus. But at the same time, you've been perfected in Jesus. How can that be? I don't know. But they're both true at the same time. Christ has perfected once and for all those who are being sanctified. You see, sometimes we act like we need to help Jesus. Like, okay, Lord, I screwed up. I know you forgive me, but let me help you because your forgiveness isn't quite enough. So now I have to do, make some more offerings. I have to offer something. I have to be a better Christian. I have to do this. I have to get involved in this. I have to, I have to help you with your forgiveness. I was talking to a guy once on Long Island where I was pastoring. He, we were eating dinner at McDonald's and he had a, a 32 caliber pistol, pistol strapped, strapped to his ankle, he told me. And he said, I am... This week, the guy who had an affair with my wife and stole my wife away, he's coming to Long Island. I have this pistol on me, and I'm going to shoot him, and I'm going to kill him. It's my most exciting pastoral appointment ever. <laughs> and Father Aaron would know exactly what to do, but I didn't know what to do. So I gulped on my, I took some big bites out of my McFish sandwich, and I stalled, and I said, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> And he said, why not? And I said, countering his argument with a brilliant move, because you'd go to jail. <laughs> and he said, I know. I want to spend the rest of my life in jail. I don't care. And I said, well, what do you think? You've, you've told me, Bill, you've done a lot of bad stuff in your life, right? Yeah. He said, are you proud of it? No, I feel terrible about it. He said, what if Jesus came to you and he said, Bill, I can forgive you everything you've ever done right now. He said, well, maybe. I said, do you believe that? He said, I believe that Jesus could forgive 80% of the stuff I've done. 80%. Oh, wow, how'd you get that math? That was interesting. I said, well, what if he said... A hundred. So we talked. Good news is, he decided not to kill this guy. Told me a year ago, he was actually doing a lot better. He's actually going to church. He's trying to follow the Lord. But Jesus doesn't forgive 80%. It's either a hundred or it's nothing. Forgiveness unleashes this motivation, this gratitude, this profound love that responds to love that he offered to us. Now we want to offer ourselves to him. We want to offer our bodies to him. Because we're accepted, we want to offer our life. That's what the writer of Hebrews calls the new and living way. It's a new and living way. We wouldn't have come up with this. No religion would have come up with this. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, which is really interesting. Because the writer of Hebrews is going to quote something that was part of Scripture before he was around. And now he's saying the Holy Spirit is bearing witness through that. And the Holy Spirit is still bearing witness to us through this. So he says, this is the covenant I will make with them 
After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Let me, let me repeat that again. Because if you're like me, you don't really believe that. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. All those rocks in our shoes, those pebbles that hurt. We might still need to do some work in repairing relationships with other people. That's a whole other sermon. But in terms of our relationship with God, I will remember your sins no more. The great uh, Christian woman from the 20th century, Corey Ten Boom, who survived the Nazi Holocaust, went on to write books on it. She says that Jesus has taken our sins and he's thrown them into the ocean and then he's put a sign up. And on that sign it says, no fishing. Some of you like to fish. You like to fish in your own ocean? Or maybe you're the kind of person that you like to fish for somebody else. Remember what you did 10 years ago? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. You can offer your life to God. You can offer your love to God, but you can't offer anything to improve upon what Jesus did to forgive your sin. That leads to the new and living way. Verses 19 to 20, then he recaps. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that was opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, through his body, because he gave his body. And since we have great high priest over the house of God, since this is true, since this is true, since this is true, verse 22, he says, boom, here's the conclusion. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. Do not shrink back in distance. Do not hold back your head in shame. Do not say, I'm not one of those good Christians. I could be a better Christian. I could do a whole lot better with this. I could do a whole lot better with that. That's the old way. Don't just stay in your head analyzing, thinking about this. Oh, I wonder if this is true. I got to analyze this. I got to think about it. Take it from a guy who spent most of his life living in his head. This is not what he wants to do. It's like a door is open. It's wide open. Jesus has opened it. Go through the door and experience this new and living way with confidence. Why? Because you're so great? No, but because Jesus is so great. Verse 22, he says, Their hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I think he's talking about baptism. Your bodies have been washed with pure water in baptism. Your body was washed. Your body was involved in this. Something happened in space and time. You got water on your skin. You were dunked or you were doused or you were sprinkled. But something was done to you and it was physical. And it wasn't just in your head. Jesus showed up. Salvation is not just in your head. God wants you to feel something, to touch something. That's why we have the Eucharist every Sunday. Think of uh, you get a cut on your arm or your finger or you have a child. She gets cut on her finger or arm. And you take the, have an antibiotic, you have the triple antibiotic ointment. And you want to prevent an infection. Well, what do you got to do? 
you have to put it on the wound. It doesn't do any good when it's right here. It doesn't do any good if you think about it in your head. You have to put it on the wound. That's what God wants us to do with forgiveness. He wants, it to apply. He wants us to apply it to the places in our heart where we have those pebbles, those rocks, those boulders. So for some of you, coming to the cross and touching the cross might be a new thing for you. And, you know, I know Father Aaron, he's going to say more about this, but there's no pressure to do that. It's not going to make you a better Christian to do that. Um, and, again, you need to come just fully convinced that that's something you want to do. But it is a way to get your body involved. God wants you to experience forgiveness. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What if you just take that verse and just apply it to some wound in your heart? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have opened up this new and living way, and God, it is just so wonderful, and I, I know my words have been inadequate, and my words are frail thing, but I just pray, God, in the power of the Holy Spirit that you would come in your presence and through your church and through your people, and that you would touch us tonight, Lord, and you would set us free, set us free to live a life of so much gratitude and love and purpose and focus for you and for your kingdom. Just pray, God, that you would cause us to truly flourish the way you intended us to flourish. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.